So we're going to begin in Acts chapter 11, picking up where we left off. So this last week, um, we, we, we went... We, we stayed here quite a bit. We, we went through an entire chapter, chapter 10, a big chapter. Some of you know this. Uh, I, call it, I like to call it the Bacon chapter. Uh, it's the chapter where, where this guy Peter all of a sudden realizes that it's Jesus that makes us clean. And all the things that he thought were unclean, like for instance animals that slithered on the ground or some birds or animals with hooves, um, are now actually a, we're, we're able to eat them. And so to be a Christian doesn't necessarily mean that we follow all of these religious laws, but it means that we follow Jesus first and foremost. And so like, I like to call it the bacon chapter because every time I get to eat the, this lovely, beautiful thing called bacon, we got to enjoy it. But, but we remember that it's God and, and his declaration of righteousness over us through Jesus Christ that makes us clean, not the things that we do. So for example, when this guy Peter has a vision of all these things that his religious group told them were unclean and off limits and against the law to enjoy, God didn't give him a set of processes, programs, or more rules to follow that would make these things clean. And as we shared this last week, you know, it, there's, a, there's an important process, important steps between a pig wallowing in his, in his you-know-what and sizzling bacon that, that comes out on a plate, right? There, there are some important steps between the two. One of them is gross. One of them is quite appetizing, right? And, and notice that God did not give Peter the steps. You, this is what you do. You clean it. You, you sterilize it. You do this. You know, he didn't give more steps. Instead, it says simply, if God declares it clean, you have no right to declare it unclean. So we, as Christians, fight against things like prejudice. We fight against things like the unfair discrimination, not because we are, are worshiping the fairness of all people, but we really believe that Jesus loves all people, and God, through the power of Jesus Christ, makes us all on a loving pl- level playing field to where His grace is accessible to each of us, regardless of how rich, poor, smart, dumb, regardless of who you are, there is no difference. There are all the classifications that you and I would use to lump people into do not apply when God sees us. Instead, all He sees is those that are in His Son, Jesus Christ. Now all of that, we covered this last week. And chapter 11 is, in fact, a repeat of it. It, It's it's a summary, but what we saw simply last week was how God opened up this guy's eyes that He was going to save not just this religious group called the Jews. This God who, who loves and adopts His people isn't just going to save this one religious group who follow these rules. Our God loves all people, and we worship a God who saves anyone and everyone. We worship a God who has the power to change lives. Know somebody who's broken? Know somebody who's, who's in a bad spot? Man, we have good news. I know a God who saves. I know a God who transforms. I know a God who gives new life, even when we don't deserve it. And that story is so important that the reaction to it is actually repeated in chapter 11. So we want to bite into this and take off maybe a smaller bite. Um, But up to this point, we've been digging through what it looks like to follow in Jesus' footsteps through the book of Acts, literally the actions of the apostles. We've been looking at what it looks like to to walk in Jesus' footsteps and to imitate the things that God gifts us to imitate and and to maybe just at least learn from the things that God gives us to learn from that we don't have the power or gifts to imitate. And we've been learning what it looks like to follow Jesus, what it looks like to call ourselves followers of Jesus. Jesus to be, let's call, Jesus enthusiasts. And so I, I, I learned something uh, over the last couple of years, and uh, I'm going to share it with you because it got illustrated even more powerfully uh, yesterday. So yesterday I drove back from Sturgis, where we helped some people set up 
uh, for, for a ministry they want to do during the, the Sturgis rally that's going on this week, this first full week in August. It's a Sturgis motorcycle rally. Well, I love motorcycles. I'm, uh, I'm weird. Um, I'm, I'm, I'm kind of a nerd, and I, and I read nerdy books, but I also like NASCAR, so I'm, I'm just a confused human being. Uh, and one of those confusions, I really love motorcycles. used to own one, used to really like it, um, lust after them when they drive by, but I sold that motorcycle so that I could buy an engagement ring um, for my wife. And even though I know she's not here, that was a good decision, it was a good investment, it was a good deal, okay? Do not regret that. Still wish I had a motorcycle. If you could have your cake and eat it too, let's be honest, we would do it. And for me, that's a motorcycle. And so I love motorcycles, and I love the thought of maybe one day having a motorcycle and rallying with these people. And it's a really cool thing that goes on, um, and, and it's really strange. It's so big that even we're like six hours away from it, and yet we still see kind of the residual effects of it. Um, this, this week when, in the year 2000, there were over 600,000 people for this rally in Sturgis. Now it stays at right about 400,000. Um, some of that's because it's mostly a baby, baby boomer um, kind of a baby boomer phenomenon, and it'll be, I'll be eager to see what happens in the next 10, 20, 30 years. Um, but uh, th- this thing is just a rally for motorcycle enthusiasts. It started in the 30s, and it started with this guy, not Harley Davidson, but a guy who owned an Indian motorcycle franchise, and he started this little club. And in 1938, they had motorcycle races, and there were nine people in the race and a handful of people who came to watch. And it lasted, you know, that long, as long as the race. It was over. Nine people racing, motorcycle enthusiasts. They loved motorcycles, so they trekked across. And over the next couple of decades, it began to get a little bit bigger, and more people would ride their motorcycles to the motorcycle races, and the races got bigger, all the way until 1949. In 1949, it was so big that they closed down on one, I think it was a Saturday afternoon, they closed down the street for two hours for the Motorcycle Rally Awards right? Because there was enthusiasts, and they got together, and they, hey, you won the race. Good for you, right? Best-looking motorcycle to you, right? For two full hours. Well, now this rally lasts, oh my goodness, there's the, it, officially it lasts a week, the first full week in August, but unofficially, man, it just, all the weeks leading up to and, and, and after that first full week in August, it's, motorcycle enthusiasts are on their way. And here's what I observed about these motorcycle enthusiasts. You see, there's different levels of enthusiasm about motorcycles, and they all seem to be participating, okay? So here's what you see on the road. And this is the fun part, because even from where we're sitting here in Sioux Falls, we can see this, right? There's the guys on a motorcycle, all right? And on the motorcycle is a backpack, like a bedroll or sleeping bag, and a tent. And they're going to ride... 1,000, 1,500, 2,000 miles on their motorcycle to get to the motorcycle rally because it's a motorcycle rally. And the time while they're there, I mean, most of what they're going to do because they don't have a choice is to be on their motorcycle. All they got is a backpack, a tent, maybe a bedroll, some less, you know, real, real enthusiasts, even less, right? And at most, they're going to spend, I don't know, the, the most expensive Harley-Davidson that's even sold right now uh, is, is, is the Road Glide. You don't, care, you don't need to care about it. I care about it. It's cool. It's nice. It's like 25 grand all loaded up, right? Infotainment system on a motorcycle, because that's a good thing to be driving while distracted. Uh, neither here nor there. So 
that's probably about the most expensive thing. They could jump on a $25,000 motorcycle. It's a Harley. Or, you know, who knows how much money they want to spend on a nice, awesome, set-up uh, motorcycle, and, and they could ride across with their backpack. But, but you know that's not the only people who go to Sturgis, right? Right? So there's the other people. And they have a car or a, a pickup or whatever, and they're pulling some sort of a trailer. And they'll pull that trailer with their motorcycle on the trailer 500, 1,000 1,500 miles, right, in their air-conditioned car pulling their motorcycle because they're motorcycle enthusiasts, <laughs> right? And then there's this other set of people that this is, this is an expensive thing. It's a big business. Literally thousands of bikes, thousands of motorcycles are shipped through auto carriers or through different means. Thousands of bikes are shipped across the country to Sturgis, and then people fly in to either Rapid City or Spearfish to hang out for a week, pick their motorcycle off of a truck, and be motorcycle enthusiasts, right? Because they're enthusiastic about their motorcycle. That's why they shipped it, so that they could get there and ride it, right? Now here, again, we're, you know, a few thousand dollars, this is getting bigger and bigger, right? And then there's the group of people that are more common. Here, here's, in 2005, the city of Sturgis put out a, a, a kind of a report that right now, and this was in 2005, almost 10 years ago, less than half of the people who are a part of this 400,000 people that go to Sturgis, less than half of them rode their bike, their motorcycle there. It's estimated in 2010, a third of the people who came to this motorcycle rally who were enthusiastic about motorcycles, a third of them rode their motorcycle to the rally. And over the last decade or two, thousands, literally thousands and thousands of campsites, trailer parks, have popped up because people are so enthusiastic about motorcycles that they throw it in the back of their car and they drive across the country to get to Sturgis. And so we would have to agree that while it's a motorcycle rally and motorcycles are the motivation, motorcycles are the things that bring them together, you'd have to agree there's different levels of, let's call, enthusiasm about their motorcycles. In fact, there's this huge other segment of the population don't own a mo motorcycle, never will own a motorcycle. They're just going for the party. And that's why the stories about the, Stur the Sturgis Motorcycle Rally are less and less now about the rally and more and more about the party. Right? It's crazy. And it started with an enthusiasm about motorcycles. So that's crazy. What are you talking about that for? Here's what I've observed. We're looking at a historical turning point in the life of people following Jesus. People enthusiastic about following Jesus. Excited about who Jesus is. And over the last couple thousand years, a lot of things have been tacked on to this thing called following Jesus. So much so that the level of enthusiasm about Jesus, the level of enthusiasm about Jesus across people who call themselves Christians is about as diverse and confusing as the level of enthusiasm across motorcycle enthusiasts that make their way across the country to this place called Sturgis. They love their bike so much that they have a multi-million dollar RV to pull their bike with. And it might be just my argument to make, but it seems like they're less and less motorcycle enthusiasts and more and more, I don't know, party enthusiasts, RV enthusiasts, camping enthusiasts, and they just happen to bring their bike along. 
And the bike seems to be an excuse to just enjoy all the things they already like. And if we're not careful, while we may call ourselves Christians, if we're not careful, we may get more excited about the things that have nothing to do with Jesus, but we really love and we use Jesus to simply baptize and approve of in his name. And the level of enthusiasm, the level of faith and trust that we have in Jesus across the spectrum of people who call themselves Christians, if we're not careful, can be just as misleading, confusing, if not inaccurate, as people who hop in a multi-million dollar or buy a multi-million dollar RV to drag their bike all the way across the country to park it and show it off to people. You see, that's exactly what's at center stage in chapter 11. So we know that God has considered people righteous through Jesus Christ, and, and Peter has seen this, but, but now Peter comes in contact with other Christians. Other Christians who are at a different place along the spectrum of people who call themselves Christians. So in verse 1 of chapter 11 in the book of Acts, now the apostles and the brothers who were throughout Judea heard that the Gentiles, that is the people who were not a part of this religious group, they were not a part of this law-following group, this law-abiding group of Jews. They heard that the Gentiles also had received the Word of God. That's really good news for us, that chapter 10 isn't just about bacon. It's also that if God can make a pig rolling in his you-know-what clean to eat, then that, it's just an example of how God can look at you and me and our filth and rebellion and sin, and because of what he's done through Jesus Christ, declare us righteous. Remember, it's not just about food. God can do more than just make a pig clean. God can make our rebellious and broken hearts clean. And these religious people in Judea heard that that's what God was doing amongst the Gentiles. Verse 2, So when Peter went up to Jerusalem, the headquarters of this religious group, the circumcision party criticized him. Now let's stop. I don't want you to make sure you understand. These are Christians but they're known as the circumcision party, right? They're supposedly enthusiastic about following Jesus. They supposedly love Jesus, but their title, even amongst uh, these people, is that they're actually enthusiastic about what? Circumcision. Again, as always, when we cover this, if you don't understand that, ask your mom and dad about it. It's really it's important to talk about. It's simply it's an intimate symbol of what God has done that is no longer applying to us. Now the intimate symbol of what God has done is not a mark on our body, but it is a mark on our hearts that we make public through baptism. And that's the symbol that you and I carry around. Our symbol is Jesus. But these people, even though they were Christians, were known as the circumcision party. Go back to our analogy, right? There was a day and time... Uh, and there's stories about it. You, you can kind of look it up. If you rode anything other than a Harley Davidson to this motorcycle rally, because remember, it's a motorcycle rally. It's for all motorcycle enthusiasts. But if you rode a motorcycle there that wasn't a Harley Davidson, there's stories about them laying them in the middle of the road and setting them on fire, right? Um, there's, there's stories about taking bikes that were not Harleys and stringing them up on a flagpole. <laughs> it's not funny. I mean, I don't own a bike, so that's funny. But if that was my bike, it wouldn't be funny. And so there's a sense in which, even though it was a motorcycle rally, everyone knew, be careful, it's really kind of a Harley-Davidson rally, right? Supposedly, it was for motorcyclists, but really, in, in practice, if you were watching from the outside, you would see it's really about people who own Harleys. 
And so there's this group of people that exist in Jerusalem who love Jesus, who follow Jesus, call themselves Christians, but it seems that if you watch them from the outside, if, if, if you were just an onlooker, you realize they're not as enthusiastic about Jesus as they are about circumcision. That is, they're more enthusiastic about their religious practices than they are about Jesus. And even though they're Christians, Luke, the writer of this book, even introduces them as not Christians, but says that they were the circumcision, circumcision party. Their loyalty, even though they said they were Christians, was actually to something else. And if you watch their practice, even though they said they were Christians, their practice betrayed them, and functionally they were loyal to something else. And of course, they, when they heard about Peter, and they heard about the story that people outside of this religious group were coming to faith in Jesus and receiving the gift of the Holy Spirit, these people began, it says in verse 2, to criticize him. And they said, you, you went to uncircumcised men and you ate with them. Now notice, I think it's kind of interesting. Um, if you go back, the, the coolest part of the story is about this, this Cornelius who is a, a high-ranking Roman official who comes to Jesus and the people around him get baptized. Baptism, remember, baptism is the symbol of our identity in Jesus. That we are put under the water. And instead of being afraid of drowning in the water, we boldly know that we're going to come out of that water in the same way that Jesus went into the tomb for three days, not in fear, but in boldness and courage, knowing that God was going to bring him out. And the symbol of our identification in Jesus is that water. And it's not, it's not a toy. It's not a game. It really is a face-to-face encounter with death. Because if I baptize a person and I don't pull them out, it ceases to be baptism and it becomes homicide right? So there really is a face-to-face encounter with death. But isn't it interesting? Nobody's afraid of death then, are they? Nobody's afraid of being drowned by a pastor, until I just put that thought in your head. (laughs) Nobody's been afraid of that. You know, when you get baptized, you come out. And it's a symbol of this amazing, miraculous, mysterious, and crazy faith that we have in Jesus, that one day you and I are going to be six feet under the ground. Our life is over. Take all the supplements, do all the exercise you want. You and I will end up under the ground. And we know that, but we're not afraid of it, are we? We know that in the same way we're not going to drown in the water, our baptism is a symbol of our faith that one day under the ground, Jesus Christ will call us out and we will be raised to new life. That's the symbol of our identity in Jesus. That's the symbol. And notice that that took place in chapter 10, but their criticism against Peter wasn't about the baptism that took place. It wasn't about this new identity that God had given them through Jesus Christ. What was their first criticism? You ate with those people. You hung out with those people. Now, I point that out because remember, all we're doing in the book of Acts here and all that you and I are doing every time we get together is we're just trying to learn from Jesus and walk in his footsteps. And so when Luke tells us a story about the followers of Jesus, he wants us to remember that they're simply doing what Jesus did. And if you'll remember very carefully, this Jesus got accused of the exact same thing. And the criticism of Jesus by the religious people was that he had a reputation for hanging out with losers, man. Real sinners. This Jesus, he hung out with drunkards. He even got accused of being a drunkard and a glutton by these religious people. That was his reputation. And he was accused by these religious people of hanging out with sinners, people you're not supposed to associate with. And the reason... The Bible tells us it's because the Son of Man, that is Jesus, came not for those that are healthy, 
but he's a doctor for those that are hurting. He came to seek and save that which was lost. And so these people are simply following in Jesus' footsteps. And they're accused, your accusers accuse these people of the exact same thing that they would have accused Jesus of. You ate and you hung out with these people who were unclean. I point that out because their excitement about things other than Jesus blinded them to the power of Jesus at work among them. Did you catch that? Their, their enthusiasm and their excitement about things other than Jesus blinded them blinded them to the things that Jesus was doing among them. Jesus was saving people that that they thought were completely lost and outside. They were outside of the realm of God's people. And Jesus saved them, and instead of being excited about them, they were blind to it and angry by it. And I point that out because if you find in your own spirit, and this is mine and, and most of us most naturally, to be more critical of things rather than encouraging, if you find yourself more prone to point out the things you disagree with and dislike than than you're able to to point out the things that you want to encourage, praise, and extol, then then be careful because this is for you. There's a lesson here for you and I that Jesus does things and he does it despite our criticism. And if we have a critical nature, we need to beware because that might blind us to what God is actually doing. So Peter defends himself. He says in verse 4, began to explain it to them in order. He says, I was in the city of Joppa praying. And then he retells and Luke repeats the story that we read in chapter 10. I was in the city of Joppa. I was praying and I was in a trance and I saw a vision. Something like a great sheet descending, being let down from heaven by its four corners. And it came down to me. Now looking at it closely, I observed animals and beasts of prey and reptiles and birds of the air. Bacon. Verse 7, And I heard a voice saying to me, Rise, Peter, kill and eat. And Peter, a good religious guy, said, By no means, Lord, for nothing common or unclean has ever entered my mouth. But the voice answered a second time, and from heaven, What God has made clean, do not call common. Notice he didn't say food. He says, anything that God makes clean, don't call it common. God can save anything. If he can take unclean food and make it clean, it's meant to simply point us to the fact that God can make clean any person in the world. And behold, at that very moment, three men arrived at the house in which we were, and they were sent to me from Caesarea. And the Spirit told me to go with them, making no distinction. And these six brothers also accompanied me, and we entered the man's house. And he told us how he had seen the angel stand in his house and say, Send to Joppa and bring Simon, who is called Peter. And he will declare to you a message by which you will be saved, you and all of your household. And as I began to speak, the Holy Spirit fell on them just as on us at the beginning. And I remembered the word of the Lord, how he said, John baptized with water, but you you will be baptized with the Holy Spirit. If then God gave us, or God gave the sign, excuse me, if God gave the same gift to them as he gave to us when we believed in the Lord Jesus Christ, who was I that I could stand in God's way? When they heard these things, they fell silent. But then they glorified God saying, then to the Gentiles also, God has granted repentance. I love this phrase, repentance that leads to life. 
So Peter was accused by the people that were highly religious that they possibly were doing something that was against their religious law. And Peter's defense was, maybe so, but I was given permission by the Spirit of God. I was shown by the Spirit of God that it's not my religious acts, it's not my religious practices that make me clean. It's God and His grace and mercy poured out to us in Jesus Christ that makes us clean. So that none of us can boast in our religiosity. Instead, that we simply boast about Jesus. And our claim to fame is not how good or bad we are. Our claim to fame is how good Jesus is. And we don't brag, or I'll say this as well, we don't shun or criticize people because of their religious practices. We look for every opportunity we can to point them to how good Jesus is. Because there is nothing that you and I have done or can do, good or bad, that is bigger and greater than what Jesus has done and can do. Our boast is in Him. And when Peter shared this with them, listen, I I, I love this. These people were highly religious. They were more enthusiastic about their religious practice of circumcision than they were about following Jesus. And God apparently softens their heart and, and and He changes their mind. And I think there's a lesson that we can observe at the very end here. And I think so because if it's fair for me to say, I think we probably are a part of a society that cares more than we should about the external things. The external things. And not even good external things. And there's a good rule of thumb I've learned from, from some people that have kind of encouraged me is that like if you're living as an adult by the same rules that you followed in junior high, there's probably something wrong. Because you remember junior high, right? Remember that? I mean, there was the kids that wore the cool clothes, and then there were not, right? I don't know what brand it was for you or what thing it was for me. Um, when I was youngest, it was, it was Jerbo's. Remember those, remember those, some of you, it's, we're going to date, whoever answers is going to, you're going to date yourself, right? Jerbo's, <laughs> and then there was these, uh, if you remember, there was this other brand of clothing uh, about the same time that had like a, it was, it was the same kind of a polo shirt, but it didn't have a Ralph Lauren horse with a guy. It was a guy on a horse and he was waving a flag instead of a, a stick. I was reminded of this, this last, this just like, if you know what I'm talking about, you know my pain. Um, but like the, the cool kids had obviously the, the cool one, and the not cool kids, we had the one that was imitating the cool one, right? And there was a big movement in flea markets. You could go to a flea market and you could buy, here's another one, Tommy Hilfiger. Remember when that was big? Everyone wearing the flags? That was a big deal. It was a big deal. And uh, if you didn't have that, you're not cool. So you could go to a flea market and buy the, the off-brand knockoffs. And it was, if you knew what to look for, all my shirts were kind of like, is that misspelled? Who? Tommy, what? I don't think that's right. Right? And then along came the, the, the really, and they were like unashamedly elitist. Remember this one? It's still around. Abercrombie. No offense if you're wearing Abercrombie at the moment, but like they, they have marketed themselves on like, we are cooler and better than you, and this is why. They were, like, they were just straight up did that. They were like, this is who we are. And these are powerful forces on us when we're at a state when we don't know who we are, right? When we're striving to find our identity in something like junior high. Boy, it's a big deal for people to accept you or reject you. It's a big deal. And so we measure ourselves by these external meters of like, what are you wearing? How are you dressed? And then when you got old enough, you got to the car stage. Anyone there? 
right? 1988 Chevy long-wide rusted-out farm truck. Anyone else? Anyone got a good one? Right? All my friends, uh, one of my best friends, he had the same birthday as me. It was kind of funny. Uh, we both turned 16 the same day, and he got a 1998 um, uh, Chevy Z71, brand new, leather, awesome. Mine was exactly 10 years older, had the same birthday, uh, and it, mine was junk. That was a big deal. I never pulled up to a place and was like, what's up? We never had a conversation about how cool my truck was, right? Were you there? In junior high or about high school, when you, when you get a car, now all of a sudden, man, it's like, that's a cool car. And you talk about it. It's a big deal. What about who you hang out with? That's a big deal, isn't it? You've got to hang out with the right group of people. This, this, is, I, this is traumatic. When you walk in the lunchroom and you sit down at a table and you're waiting for people to join you and those seconds draw on like hours. Like, I'm just, I'm just going to sit here. I'm just going to commit to it. I'm not going to move. I'm not going to look. I'm going to look like I mean to be here. I want to eat alone. I don't want to sit with you. I want to eat here by myself. I don't want you to sit at my cafeteria table. And then when somebody sits down, you're like, oh, oh, so good. Yeah, it, and there's this great, am I the only one? Maybe I'm the only one. Maybe you, you obviously were the cool kids at the cool table. There were moments where I was not. And, and, and we're, forgive me for maybe making a criticism even of myself, but not a lot has changed. Not a lot has changed from those standards that were set on us in junior high to what the standards of today on the common adult are it's still a big deal what you wear it's still a big deal what kind of a car you drive a multi-billion dollar industry built around each one of these things what you wear what you drive how you fit in to the extent that now they even sell they're even selling like food products that have nothing to do with acceptance, and they're making that about it. It, it, watch a Watch the next Sprite commercial, right? Or, I mean, whatever is cool. It's like, if you're not, if you're not drinking this, you are not cool. And they're, they're attacking those same insecurities you had when you were in sixth grade. Look at those beautiful, awesome, cool people drinking that drink. I must need to drink it. And we're grown adults, and we still follow the same rules imposed upon insecure, pubescent children awful and most of the decisions i make are usually based on what i think people will think of it you may too so we don't want to harshly criticize these people because they're simply representing i think you and i that our tendency is to see the surface emphasize it and then evaluate people as a result Our tendency is to focus on the externals. And I point that out because there is incredibly good news about the God of the universe who created all things external. He sees right through the surface. He knows the matter of the thing regardless of the surface of the thing. He sees the hearts of people. He sees the identity of people, not what they wear, not what they do. He doesn't judge people by the group of people they work with or hang out with. Our God sees our hearts and knows us. And on one hand, that's incredibly terrifying, right? Because God isn't impressed with how much work you put into yourself in front of the mirror this morning. Didn't impress God. He sees right through it. And that's terrifying. 
But on the other hand, I hope, it, I hope it's satisfying and it sets you free. God knows exactly who you are before you spend all that time trying to look different. And God loved that person before you were even made, much less before you got your makeup and your clothes on. And that's incredibly good news that we see illustrated here. And it's incredible that God shaped these people's thoughts that they heard it. This is a story about how these people who used to at one point be focused on external things heard this good news about what God was doing and they began to glorify God as a result. Oh, I wish we would be as soft in our hearts. Because I even myself struggle with this. Like, uh, if you hang around me and my wife, she's not in the room, so I can kind of say the story, but uh, she always tells me to do things, and I always know already what to do. She feels a need to tell me, you need to do that. Like, if you don't turn here, you're going to miss your turn. And so, I'm, yeah, I know. I know. Obviously, I know that. What, what am I? I'm not, I'm not stupid, right? If, if you don't swerve, you're going to hit that car. Well, th- thanks. Thank you, right? And so I just, I, I already know that. You don't need to tell me. Here's the thing I'm going to tell you because she's not in the room. Sometimes, sometimes she tells me things and reminds me of things, and even though I act like I already knew it, don't tell her this, I did not. <laughs> I was about to miss the exit. I was about to miss the turn. Now, I don't tell her that. I'll ne- I would admit that. I, of course I knew that. Yes, obviously. You know, I, I would never tell her that. But occasionally, a lot more than I would like to admit, I'm wrong. And we see revealed another tendency in our own heart. A lack of humility, pride, maybe it's an idolatry of our own selves, we worship our own selves and being right. But even with this person who I love and cherish more than anyone else, my wife, even with this person who knows everything about me, even (laughs) You and this person is my favorite person in the whole world. She's probably going to listen to this on audio later, so just give me a second here. This person who is the most valuable person to me in the whole world, I have a hard time admitting failure to. I have a hard time humbling myself and admitting that she's right and I'm wrong. And isn't this an amazing story where these people resisted the temptation to argue over being right and they resisted this temptation instead. They hear this story about what God is doing. Their hearts are changed. Their lives are changed, and they begin to glorify God as a result. And as a result, if you keep reading on, you find out that more people begin to hear this good news, and their lives are changed as a result. Oh, that you and I will be humble enough that when God sends people to rebuke us, challenge us, and teach us, we would have the presence of mind, presence of faith, and hopefully an acknowledgement of who God is great enough to say, you're right, you're right. I would rather follow Jesus than be right. I would rather be right with God and be a part of what he is doing so that he would get the glory than to wage this war so that I will get the glory. I would rather look past the external things that seem to grab my attention the most, and I would rather look past them and see a God who cares deeply about people and not the masks that they wear.
Oh, that you and I would feel the same way. Because make no mistake about it. Even in this room, many of us would call ourselves Christian. And if you're not, you're in good place because I think as we've shown, even to call yourself a biking, a bicycle or motorcycle enthusiast doesn't necessarily mean you are. And as you watch this group of people, as we call ourselves Christian, my question and challenge to you would be, what are the things that you might have added to the mix? Is there anything that you expect from the people around you other than to love, cherish, and follow Jesus in his footsteps? Because I will warn you, our tendency would be to focus on the external things that we can see, but what we might have done is actually blinded ourselves to the good news of a God who saves without discrimination. A God who loves without distinction. A God who sent his Son to show us that there is no better or worse, richer or poorer, greater or lesser. There is only this good news and grace of Jesus that's free to all people. So as I see it, there's probably going to be a couple different ways to receive this. If you're, if you're not a Christian, maybe you've been turned off by Jesus and, these, and people who call themselves Christians, I understand there's a good reason, right? There's a reason why people who rode 2,000 miles across the country on a motorcycle scoff when the massive RV pulling a motorcycle drives by, right? There's kind of a sense in which you are not, no, we're not the same. And if you've picked up on that, it's a tendency to feel excluded. But there's incredibly good news. For all our failures, our God sees us, sees our faults, and still loves us. Our God is not waiting for us to have the right religious practices, to join the right church and say the right things. Our God did not wait to send his son, Jesus Christ, but instead, while we were still rebelling against him, he showed his love to us by letting his one and only son die in our place. And if you find yourself far from God this morning, I want to encourage you, there's no such thing as a stranger in God's eyes. And to prove it, he sent us Jesus. But maybe, maybe if you know that good news, maybe you've heard that good news, maybe you're on, you're on this side of it and, or you're like me and you've heard it and you, you've embraced it, but, but you're still measuring things by externals. And join me. Join me in humility by saying, I would rather be wrong about those external things in order to be a part of what God is doing. God, don't let us miss out on what you're doing because we're so obsessed with what we can see and feel and touch. Instead, let us be more excited and enthusiastic about who Jesus is and let us throw off every single hindrance until we have him and him alone. Let's pray. God, we thank you so much. Uh, We thank you. Uh, This story is repeated. We thank you that uh, I think there's people just like us in this story who have a tendency to judge, uh, have a tendency to criticize, um, there's people just like us that, that can't see the big picture of what you're doing. And, and we confess that we, we, we often do not perceive all of the amazing things you're doing around us. But God, let us take this example and apply it to our lives. Let us be people who look much deeper than the surface. Let us be a group of people who love and trust 
each other, not because we look or act or speak the same way, but let us love and trust one another because we know that deep down inside, Jesus has done something for us that's much bigger and grander and greater than anything we could ever do for ourselves. So help us to be humbled if, if there's a moment in which we, we fail to see you in your majesty and we want the glory for ourselves. Help us to see that and be humbled by it. Admit our failure. Admit that we would rather be a part of what you're doing than to be blinded by the things we think are more important. My prayer is that our identity would be shaped by Jesus. Our true enthusiasm would be Jesus and that everyone would see us and they would realize that these people really do love and trust and follow Jesus. I pray that as a church, we as a group of people gathered in your name would be more enthusiastic about who you are and what you've done for us than anything else. Help us to be followers of Jesus first and foremost so that we wouldn't miss out on the amazing thing you've done for us. If there's someone in this room, maybe they, they wouldn't call themselves a follower of Jesus. Help, help, us, to, help us to not ruin it for them. Uh, God, may you show them how good you are. May you show them how merciful you are. That we would respond to this good news and our identity would no longer be in the external things, but our identity and our salvation, our joy and our happiness would be found in the thing that you've done for us in Jesus. We ask this in your name. Amen.